This is a Multiversal Q special presentation. Previously on our coverage of DC 1 million, Vandal Savage, the immortal caveman, teamed up with Solaris, the tyrant's son, in two different decades. Well, the Justice Legion A, the version of the Justice League from over 8, 80,000, 800,000 years in the future, came back in time. Yeah, shit, I, I sort of messed this up. Uh, yeah, anyways, Justice Legion A came back from the future because Superman from the current day is going to come out of the sun where he's been for the past, like, couple thousand years, and Vandal Savage and Solaris the Tyrant Sun want to kill him. In the past, they released the Hourman virus while the Justice Legion A was watching over them, so the Earth is now watching its technology becoming corrupted and they're becoming paranoid, and the only way to cure the virus is to create another solar computer, which means that the Justice Legion A has to create their greatest enemy, Solaris the Tyrant's son in the past. And meanwhile, in the future, our current Justice League has been set on uh, planets to do tasks of great strength. So let's get started now. Welcome to Multiversal Q, your guide to the comic book multiverse. Now in podcast form. I'm Luke. And I'm Devin. And this week we're continuing... DC 1 million, for our 1 millionth episode. Yes, which is so big we're splitting it into 4 or 5 episodes. Numbers mean nothing, Devin. Oh, absolutely nothing. They're all just symbols used to explain cognitive ideas. And even then, not really. At least for in terms of our numbering. And if I learned one thing from the movie Gifted, it's that being smart doesn't make you happy. That's a sad thought, Luke. Mm-hmm. But it was Chris Evans who gave us that thought. And he had good abs in the movie. Chris Evans always has good abs in pretty much every movie. Yeah, but you know who he romanced in that movie? Who? Is it that little girl in the poster? Was it weird? No, it, it was uh, Jenny Slate. Oh, that's cool. Yep. Mona Lisa. Mm-hmm. But she's actually the worst, though. But she was also, like, Harley Quinn in Lego Batman movie. And she was the uh, oh, mayor's yeah. assistant in Utopia. Oh, yeah. And she was apparently Zoe in Alvin and the Chipmunks, Chipwrecked. It's been a while since I've seen that movie. You don't need to lie, Devin. Oh, I, I will not lie. I watched all four of those Chipmunk movies, and I loved all of them. I know. But I only I saw them it. once in the theaters. Well, it is time to get into our stories, so if there is anything you are unfamiliar with, Devin, you can let me know, and I will try and explain it as best to you. Okay. So the uh, first thing that we are covering is Impulse 1 Million which was written by William Messner Loves, with pencils by Craig Rousseau, inks by Barbara Kahlberg, letters by Chris Eliopoulos, and colors by Tom McCraw. And do you know about Impulse? Yes, because he was in one of the first Teen Titans issues I ever read when Deathstroke uh, blew out his kneecaps to send a message to the rest of the Titans. It was awesome. <laughs> oh, okay. I was not expecting you to uh, know who Impulse was. Uh... For those of you who have not read that issue or other issues, 
Impulse is Bart Allen, who is a speedster from the future who grew up at a accelerated rate in virtual reality. And so, because he needed to be taught, he was taught in pretty much a video game world, so he never really learned consequences to his actions. So as Superman 1 million and John Fox, who is the Flash of the DC 1 million era, try to figure out what to do, Superman suggests that John Fox goes to work with Impulse, so he heads down to Manchester, Alabama. And that Impulse series is really, really good. That was back when Mark Wade was a younger writer, and it's just a very good character piece. So at the time, Bart and his friend Carol are watching the news when he sees the rocket red suit that is flying in India around the Taj Mahal, and he heads out to try and stop it, only to run into John Fox. Fox wants to talk to Impulse, but Impulse doesn't trust him because they have met in the past, and literally Mark Wade's series was literally... was... 50% oh here's a speedster it may be someone you think is good but it's evil or here's a speedster you may think he's evil but he's actually good nice yeah they've been uh talking a lot about that on uh war rocket ajax recently because they've been oh, okay. doing their every story ever segment and it's like they they've commented on the fact that that's where we get a lot of the uh villains who will probably be the season-long enemies in uh the Flash TV show for a while, just because oh, okay. there are so many evil speedsters. That show does love to have evil speedsters. Yeah, I, I I did not finish the most recent season. Like, I started on the last issue, or I started on the last episode of Riverdale, and was like, eh, I'm I'm good for right now. Yeah, I didn't watch it either. I actually fell off last season. Yeah, and it, then just never got around to finishing it. I will at some point. Yeah, it was also video game season, so. Well, I'm talking about season two. Oh, I fell off yeah. right. I fell off right after the crossover that creates Legends of Tomorrow. Oh, okay. So, yeah, Legends of uh, Legends of Tomorrow is still a lot of fun. That's good. I think it also benefits from having shorter seasons. Probably, but it suffered from making. Uh, the guys who play Heat Wave and Captain Cold popular again, because then they had to go and do that prison remake, or prison break. Scene. Oh, yeah. Anyways, Impulse is also being affected by paranoia from the Hour Man virus. John Fox tries to explain the situation and that he needs help, but Bart rushes off to New Delhi. He ties up John Fox, but John Fox is able to escape, and then he ties up Impulse. Impulse escapes again, and they start racing around the world. But Impulse ended up leading them to the path of the Red Rocket, which started attacking them, and they realized that it can only, like, notice them if there is a speedster in it, which doesn't make a lot of sense to it. Nope. But they're like, oh, that's probably where Jesse Quick is. And so John gives Impulse a telepathic communicator chip, and they enter into a virtual space where we get to see Earth from the future where nature has been restored because all of civilization lives inside tesseracts rocket red starts attacking but they are only seeing the future because of the chips so impulse ends up stealing john's chips and puts it on jesse's suit but because it's a uh, robot they are able to enter in separately into the system so jesse is in the virtual reality impulse is in the virtual reality and then also a visualization of the bomb is in the virtual reality 
Uh, Impulse tries to, like, work and mess with the bomb, but it ends up speeding the time before it's set to escape. Luckily, John Fox comes in because he had extras of the devices. He convinces Jesse that she can escape from the bomb. She does, and they end up deactivating the suit. Hooray! Mm-hmm. Up next is Starman 1 Million, which was written by James Robinson, with pencils by Peter Snellbjerg, inks by Wade Von Grawbadger, letters by Bill Oakley, colors by Gregory Wright, and color separation by GCW. And we start off with a brief summary of Starman 1 Million's duties, where he is orbiting Solaris the Tyrant's sun, and the sun has heated up the colder planets, allowing life to come to them. And that's pretty much all of his life. And back in the past, the super assassin Deathbolt, who is essentially a guy who got turned into a living battery and can now shoot electricity, is trying to kill Ted Knight, who was the first Starman who at this point is retired. The premise of the Starman series was about legacies, like all the way down. And it it's really good. I think I've mentioned how good it is before. I think you have too. Ted's oldest son was killed as Starman, which led to... His younger son, Jack Knight, taking over, with Jack Knight being a jerk early on, not wanting to be a hero. And, uh, yeah, at this point, Jack is in space, because if I recall, he's trying to find Solomon Grundy. But I may be totally misremembering that. Anyways, Starman 1 million shows up, Deathbolt is able to escape, and during the fight, Starman called Ted Knight father... Because it turns out that this Starman is Ferris Knight, who is one of Jack's direct descendants. Jack had wanted to meet Starman, and so he savors this whole opportunity to talk with him. And Ferris explains that for a long period of time, there was actually no Starman. And instead of using the Star Rod that Jack Knight had developed, he instead utilizes the Gravity Rod that his old that his own great-grandfather found when he was stranded by space pirates. He used the rod to become Starman, get back at the pirates, and then became the new Starman again, starting this legacy which Ferris adopted from his mother. As they head into the night to talk, he explains about how his mother was the Starman historian, and how the uh, name wasn't always used by heroes. There were like even two villains from the Knight family, including Ted's great-grandson. And as a weird side note, Jack Knight, a big part of the series is that he gets raped by a villainess who pretty much sperm-jacks him. And he gave birth to a son. So there's sort of the regressive idea that evil is either spread genetically or, like, children of rape can be evil but that may just be me ascribing something to an idea that wasn't super well thought out anyways uh ted asks if jack is remembered as the greatest Starman, and ferris is like nah he's no one knows about him but uh the same thing with uh ted's time as Starman. but ted is remembered for discovering cosmic energy and he's like on the same level as einstein and galileo Ferris reveals that he came for a piece of kryptonite that Ted found way back when he was a hero, and he needs to bury it on Mars, and Ted trusts Ferris, which just causes Ferris to break his whole facade. He reveals that he is actually a traitor. He was the one who woke up Solaris' original evil programming, and he was offered freedom, 
which would be the destruction of the Starman legacy, because he never really wanted to be Starman. He likes the fame and the power that comes with it, but he doesn't want to do all the work that's required. And he realizes that he's pretty much a villain. Out of rage, he ends up destroying Ted's telescope, which was the thing that originally inspired Ted to look to the stars for energy and eventually become a superhero. And when Ferris goes to kill Ted, Ted tells him that he's still proud of Ferris for being Starman, and that even if he isn't proud of all of the actions that he's taken, he still tried to be a hero, and Ferris can't kill him and just flies off with the kryptonite. Hooray. Ted is like one Less of the so. good parents. Ted is like one of the few good parents who survives in comics. But it like helps that the series is all about that sort of thing. Yeah. Up next we have JLA One Million, which was written by Grant Morrison with pencils by Howard Porter, inks by John Dell, letters by Kenny Lopez, colors by Pat Garrahy with Heroic Age on the Separations. At this point in time, Batman and Superman 1 million have been able to create the solar computer core for Solaris, and neither of them are super happy about it. The problem is they now need a power source, and the only one that is big enough for them is currently on the moon at the JLA Watchtower, where the only people there are Steel, Huntress, Plastic Men, Zariel, and Big Barda, who are all currently unaffected by the Iron Man virus. And they get ready to fight as Superman 1 million comes closer, but they're pretty sure there's not going to be much that they can do. The rest of Justice League 1 million is waiting to be teleported up, which happens pretty quickly. Barta gets into a fight with Wonder Woman 1 million, Aquaman 1 million escapes into the water tanks, Steel heads to the armory, Zariel finds Batman 1 million with the unconscious Batman, who Batman 1 million was checking up on, but... Aquaman 1 million is able to catch Zariel in water. Huntress goes to fight John Fox in a red and pink room and ends up shooting him with a sedative drug and while he's slowed down, Plastic Man reveals that he is the room and beats him up on the inside. Like, with his insides because John Fox was inside Plastic Man. Nice. It's not a Vor thing. Yeah. Zario ended up escaping from Aquaman's water using his Heaven Sword, and Aquaman wanted to fight more, but Batman insists that they stop and just let Zario, who is an angel, stare into their souls. Steel, meanwhile, is still in the armory when he runs into Superman, and Steel realizes that there is a reason that there is still a Justice League in the future and that they need to work together. Barda, meanwhile, has been beating the shit out of Wonder Woman, but Steel is able to get her to stop. And back on Earth, John Jones, the Martian Manhunter, and our man, One Million, reach out informing that they have limited time. So they start constructing Solaris, but they still need energy, which is when Starman comes in with the gravity rod and the night fragment, which is the piece of kryptonite he took. And Batman accuses him of betraying the group. Scandal! Yes. Which leads into DC 1 Million, number 3, which was written by Grant Morrison, with pencils by Val Semeckis, inks by Prentice Rollins, letters by Ken Lopez, with Pat Garrahy on colors, and Heroic Age on the separations. Back during the third day, the world is starting to fall further into chaos, and the Justice League must save the Earth before the dawn of the next day. Tensions are high as they attempt to construct Solaris, but they are slowly succumbing to the Hourman virus, and Superman continues to lose more of his powers, while Batman is fighting Starman for betraying the group. 
Adam, meanwhile, is still inside of Oracle, trying to find a solution, noting that the attacks by the Hourman virus are on the hypothalamus, and he just cracked the code. He finds out how to weaken the virus at a cellular level, which allows the immune system to take over, but they need to find a solution to spread it all over the world and fast. Meanwhile, in Egypt, Vandal Savage has launched a military strike with his Blitz tanks, and Martian Manhunter shows up to stop him. Back on the satellite, Batman and Starman talk it out, and he explains that he was supposed to deliver the kryptonite to leave it on Mars for Solaris so that he would be able to kill Superman Prime. And Batman decides to give Starman a chance, returns his gravity rod, and asks them for their help to finish Solaris. As John fights Savage's tanks, the Titans, all of whom were saved, uh, Wonder Woman ended up saving Supergirl off-page because Wonder Woman was like the only member of the Justice League big characters who only had one book at a time. And uh, Garth, we found out, ended up freezing the suit before it hit. Uh, they end up surrounding Vandal Savage, and Aquaman already put a arrow into one of Savage's eyes, which is why in the future he only has one eye. Even though he, I'm pretty sure, gets it back after this story. Uh, he ends up shooting an incendiary arrow. Savage catches it and throws it at the group, debilitating Martian Manhunter and allowing him to escape. Up in space, meanwhile, Solaris is activated, and Justice League has to hope that the good will eventually win out in Solaris, the Tyrant's Sun! It ends up absorbing all of the Hourman virus, which, when the sun absorbs it, it brings Solaris back to life, because he had ended up sneaking his core process bit by bit back in time as a virus, and now he is able to destroy the Earth. Starman, though, who was touched by Ted Knight's who was touched by Ted Knight's words, goes to sacrifice himself because of what Ted Knight said about being a hero. He uses his gravity rod to make a black hole inside of Solaris, stopping him for the time being, and he realizes that this is where the gravity rod ultimately comes from, and his suit self-destructs, saving him from a painful death. The Justice Legion A wants to destroy Solaris now, but everybody is too weak at the time, and they need access to time travel. Luckily, Huntress has a plan to solve everything. Yay! It, it, yeah. I do like how fast-paced the book is. Oh, yeah. Like, you can read it on its own compared to, like, a lot of other events. And beyond the books that are, like, really relevant, uh, like, a lot of the stuff you don't even need to read to understand what's going on. It's just fun set decoration. Oh, agreed. It kind of reminds me a bit of Marvel's Secret Wars. Yes, except like the the good the the more recent one. Yeah, the uh, Hickman one. Yeah, yeah. I ended up reading that the same weekend that I took notes on the first parts of this, and it is sort of frustrating how more of those series didn't tie in or had direct continuity mistakes. I would agree with that. Like, here there's one or two, but it's usually editorial not passing things on. Like, there is a part where it's like, oh, there's five suits up in the air, and it's like, no, there's only four. Oh, yeah. But we next head to Batman One Million, which was written by Doug Minch, with art by Yvel Guichet and Sal Schema, with colors by Gregory Wright, separations by Android Images, and letters by Todd Klein. Past Batman, Bruce Wayne, who was sent to the future, wakes up on Pluto next to Robin, the toy wonder. Robin explains that 
Batman 1 million knew that past Batman wouldn't likely want to go along with the plan, so Batman 1 million forced him to go into the future, and we saw that last issue because of Octopus Telekinetic Kung Fu. Pluto is a planet-sized Arkham Asylum, even though Pluto is no longer considered... Pluto's still not considered a planet, right? Nope. Crummy scientist took it away from us. Thanks, crummy scientist. This is why Donald took us out uh, of the Paris Accords, to get back at those Pluto scientists. I'm pretty sure he just thought that the Paris Accords meant that we had to go and do nice things for Paris instead of the United States. Well, it's true. Because the man is clueless and doesn't know what he's talking about. Shut up, Donnie. You're out of your league. Yeah. Yes, Pluto has been turned into a planet-sized version of Arkham Asylum. Batman, meanwhile, is currently in a clone of his body and has a copy of his costume. And Batman doesn't want to participate in this contest that he was brought in for. But he ends up walking into the arena and is forced to start dodging traps and more so he does not die. And he is doing well until a future virus starts affecting the planet, setting up the entire contest so it might even kill Batman. And the virus is also spread to all the other planets. To get through this, Robin explains that he is going to need to go to the Justice Legion base, which orbits around Jupiter. And to do that, he'll need to get to the Batcave, which has a boom suit for him. Unfortunately, the security is also being affected and is trying to kill Robin, and all of the prisoners are released, so they start fighting them, including a futuristic version of Clayface named Metaclay. And Robin ends up explaining his origin, where he is literally the memories of Batman 1 million before his entire family was killed, and it's still bringing that quintessential Batman idea into Batman 1 million and... Robin the Toy Wonder, which is pretty great. Yep. As they continue to fight, they run into Riddle City, which is a sentient city version of the Riddler, Dice God, which is a six-faced version of Two-Face, both of whom are futuristic versions of Gotham villains inspired or based on the originals. After the slaughter, Batman uh, 1 million, we find out, dismissed all of the other guards, and he has been personally keeping the planet on lockdown with Robin as his only partner. They end up heading into the Tesseract, which holds the Batcave, but they are pursued by the Laugher and the other inmates, and they are unable to access the actual cave, which looks rough, until Catwoman 1 million shows up. Catwoman 1 million was written and penciled by Jim Ballant, with the dialogue by Devin Grayson, with inks by John Staniski, colors by Roberta Tews, and letters by Albert T. De Guzman. And uh, Catwoman showed up and wants a ride off of Pluto in exchange for helping them out, which Robin won't agree to, but Batman agrees to. Catwoman rushes ahead and starts fighting the Batcave defenses and the inmates, only to run into an anti-riot tank, which she is able to turn on the other villains. She drops into the underbelly of the base and runs into a teenage girl who is stuck there as well, but it turns out that she is a futuristic version of the Ventriloquist, tries to kill Catwoman, until a bat security droid stops her. Catwoman is able to stop the droids, hops onto a flying one, and gets to the entrance. When she tries hacking into the system, it fights back, almost completely knocking her out, so she has to enter in manually. Meanwhile, Batman and Robin the Toy Wonder have been continuing to fight the Laugher, who's the futuristic version of the Joker. Catwoman finally gets in and is able to deactivate the computer, 
and Batman rushes in for the suit. Catwoman kisses him and then runs off into her shuttle, where she gets aliened because the future version of Killer Croc is in there, and she kills it or knocks it out before making it off-world. Hooray! We next head to Robin 1 Million, which was written by Chuck Dixon, with art by Staz Johnson and Stan Walk, with colors by Adrian Roy and letters by Tim Harkins. Outside of the Batcave, Robin the Toy Wonder continues to fight the villains while Batman is inside, trying to access the boom suit. Batman 1 Million shows up in hologram form to help Batman. Outside, Batman is doing a good job holding off of the villains until the laugher starts shooting. But his attack ends up knocking out more of the villains, and Robin is able to knock Laffer off of his robot suit, but Laffer ends up stabbing him with a power spike, incapacitating the Toy Wonder. Batman 1 Million is deactivated by the Laffer, who threatens to kill Robin if he doesn't get the suit, and Batman gives in. Laffer puts on the suit, and then gets dropped into space, which presumably kills him. Yeah, it did not look like he was going to come out from that. Yeah. Robin is barely alive, but they notice that someone else is trying to escape, and they jump onto his ship, heading towards the escape pod. It is Flanagan, who genetically alters vermin, and he is trying to use a uh, ship that he put together. They hijack his ride with him piloting, and they start heading towards Jupiter. Meanwhile, Robin is starting to deactivate inside the ship, and Flanagan asks if Batman knows the access codes to get to the planet, Otherwise, they'll be destroyed. We then head into the first two of the extra issues that we're covering. I use extra because they aren't really directly tied into the events of DC One Million. The first one is Young Justice One Million, written by Peter David, with art by four different teams, Tad Nauk and Larry Strucker, Angel Unzueta and Norm Rapmund, uh, Craig Rousseau and Sean Parsons, and Roberto Flores and Wayne Foucher, with colors by Jason Wright, and letters by Ken Lopez. Superboy 1 million heads to Pluto for a meeting of the Justice Legion T, and Robin the Toy Wonder shows up because they have a pod that is marked Young Justice that is from the past. Impulse also shows up, and Impulse 1 Million is sort of a collective unconsciousness of Speed Force users given not really a physical form, but he can travel around. And they are super happy about having this hero with them, except that they are unable to open the case and they can't interact with whoever is inside of it. And they start guessing about who might be inside of it, believing it to be their ancestors. Superboy 1 Million talks about when Superman was killed by Doomsday, so Superboy showed up. Doomsday had tossed him into the sky, but Superboy came back down and then kicked Doomsday into space, where he was never seen again. Robin calls him out on his bullshit story and talks about a time when a Sun Eater ate the sun, freezing Gotham in ice, while an earthquake also hit, combining a bunch of big DC events that happened around the time. Batman ended up breaking his back, and all of the other heroes lost their powers, while crime ran rampant across the Earth. Robin tried to rouse the heroes and told them that it wasn't the time to choke, which ended up somehow restoring the heroes' powers. They went into space and made the Sun Eater cough up the sun, and then it was sent into a pocket dimension, where it ate that sun and was forced to live in eternal darkness. He gets called out for the many plot holes in his story, so Impulse shares his story about Young Justice when a giant feather showed up, 
The Young Justice team of the past tried finding the source and got attacked by giant eggs because their villain was the Millennium Chicken! And his story was stopped there because it sounded dumb. They want to ask the Young Justice member who was frozen what actually happened, but ended up incinerating them instead. And as the teens decided to keep it a secret, they admit that they all may have been lying a bit. But as they stand on Pluto where they were meeting, we see the giant footprint of a massive chicken. Which is an okay story. Yeah. I don't know, it's pretty a fine story, but yeah, it just didn't add anything. Yeah. We could probably do a ranking of all of the issues, but I... It would probably need to be just the ones that don't directly tie into the story. Yeah. Would you be up for doing that later on, Devin? Yeah. Uh, after that is Green Arrow 1 Million, which was written by Chuck Dixon with pencils by Frank Tehran, inks by John Stasinski, with colors by Lee Lofridge, separations by Jameson Services, and letters by John Costanzo. In the present, Connor Hawk receives a vision of the future where the children of Oliver Queen have become the guardians of the Earth, known as the Green Arrows, protecting the wild parts of it. We see one of the Green Arrows, Hawk, has been captured by Grodchild, a cyborg ape descendant of Grod, and they want him to bring his astral shaft. They end hot. up threatening Hawk's sister Canera for it. What? I said hot. For his astral shaft. Uh, they end up threatening his sister Canera for him to agree to work with him, and so he agrees to go along, and they bring him back to their base. Meanwhile, Canera is able to escape from her ape captors. Grudgehaud brings Hawk with him down into the Fortress of Solitude, which he has broken into, while Canera summons a giant whale to help her escape. Grudgehaud gets him in by traveling into Tesseract space, but when they get in, uh, Grudgehaud's ship is destroyed by the defenses, and Grudgehaud reveals that he wants Hawk to kill the original Superman Prime who was here from the past, because he is not yet immune to magic, so Hawk using the Astro Bow, will be able to control him, which will allow him to control the Earth since Grodchild thinks that he still has Canera. But Canera reaches out to Hawk and lets him know that she is safe, so Hawk instead shoots Grodchild and makes him beat himself up, and he gets to meet Superman. That night, the Green Arrows meet and message Connor Hawk in the past, and he finds out that Oliver Queen is still alive in his era, since he had other children. Or, like, more believably, Oliver just slept around a lot and had a bunch of other children, but mm -hmm. let's go with what Connor thinks. And that is the end of, uh, this episode of, uh, DC 1 million coverage. This one went a lot faster. Yeah, it did. This one was able to be summed up quicker. Like, had, like, big moments for some of them, but not necessarily, like, little minutia stuff. And it was a lot more action-packed, I'd say. Like, the first two issues of DC 1 Million are probably where we spent most of our time. Agreed. On that first episode, just because there was so much in there. So. Yeah, I, I'm still really enjoying DC 1 Million at this point. I'm not necessarily looking forward to having to take notes on the next bunch of issues, but there's some good stuff in there. Uh, next time, we have Legionnaires, Azrael, Chase, Creeper, Wonder Woman, The Power of Shazam, The Flash, Supergirl, and Lobo. As we return next week, 
And coming up on Friday of this week, we'll be releasing our crossover Thor, The Lightning and the Storm, which is the spin-off podcast of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we will be covering What If the New Mutants Stayed in Asgard. So look out for that, and we'll see you next week. Uh, Multiverse Q is a weekly podcast. We are listener-supported, and your support, both financially and by spreading the word about us, keeps us going. For as little as a dollar a month, you can get bonus content, which usually is bonus episodes, and then we will release episodes of Exiled in advance, because that is the show that we are able to record and edit episodes early on. Uh... You can find more out about us at MultiversalQ.com, or you can check out the Patreon, which is under my name, Luke Hare. I will also be making a appearance at uh, Heroes Con, which is on the weekend of the 16th, 17th, and 18th. So you can stop on by, pick up some cards, and I will be working on getting a new sketchbook so we can do a sketch episode when I return. Devin, where can people find you online? You can find me online at FredoFett, that's F-R-E-D-D-O-F-E-T-T, and Luke, where can people find you? You can find me online at at Coltreg, that's K-O-L-T-R-E-G, on the Twitter, or at LukeHare, L-E-K-E-H-E-R-R dot com. And you can also check out our spinoff podcast, Exiled, which is beginning its seventh volume this week. Uh, I'm considering it the second season, and I'm really excited about where this one is going to go because I have plans and uh, some unexpected... Well, I always have unexpected things, don't I, Devin? Yes, you do. Yeah. But, uh, yes, thank you for listening, and until next week, or until our next episode, this one's for Hank! One million.